Okay, welcome everybody back to Misunderstood. I'm Rachel Yucatel. My next guest really needs no introduction, Cato Kalin. He is the world's most famous house guest who became a household name during uh, the O.J. Simpson trial when he was the star witness for the prosecution. Today, we are here to talk about that with him, but more importantly, to talk about the person behind the headlines. So Cato, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so happy you're here. Well, Rachel, you're gorgeous. Thanks for having me. And I'm so happy to say that I... I do own my own couch. Thank oh, you so good. much. Well, you know what's funny? It's amazing. So, but my biggest question that I have for you is, do you have a guest house yet that somebody else lives in? That is, that is the goal I have. But I do have, I, I have like uh, probably three months more of my payments and I own my own house. So uh, how dumb would that be for me to actually live in the guest house and not in the main house? There we go. Kato, what are you doing? Move right. into the main house. But one day you have to have a guest in the guest house. Yeah. I 100%. I, you know, I travel so often and I, I, that's what everybody pretty much says. That's like people will offer me to stay at their house or their guest house constantly. Please be our guest house for the weekend. And I thought, boy, this might be a really good job. It's just to go to places and live in their homes because people yeah. just want me on their phone machines. And now, you know, people have this company called Cameo. And now it's like all these things I've thought of that became other people became billionaires. I said, how great would that be? The crash. And, and by the way, I've been invited this week. Uh, all these people always ask me to be in their weddings. I, I don't know them, but for some reason, people come up to me and they, say, they feel like they know me. And maybe they feel the same way about you. I, I just, they all feel like they know me, which of course they don't, but they, but they're always smiling and they laugh. So it's a good sign. Right. Well, so, but you're so beloved, actually. I mean, I feel like you did oh, get, you, you had a very hard time during the trial and we'll get into that in a minute, but I, I feel like your personality really stands out and people can't help but love you. So what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about Cato Kalin, the thing that people think they know? Well, I, I think part of it was back back then, the the court of public opinion already made their verdict on me of being a, uh, you know, an airhead, someone that didn't work, a pariah, you know, an assassin's target. I had all these things going against me. And I said, oh my God, I was, and I started thinking about my life ago. I was the high school quarterback. I was, I was the prom king and I never had people not like me. And I was like, I never felt it before. And it, it made me very introverted. And I, I just, it never, ever stopped working, always hustling. So I think when the media portrays you as a, a lie, that really affects you, but I think it affected my late mom more than it affected me and my family because they they knew who I was. And I'm just, it was this guy from Wisconsin that came out from my dream to go to California to, to get in acting. And so I, you know, I've always stuck true to those goals. Even today I hustle with so many shows and I sold the show and I, all my dreams are coming true. It took forever, but I, I think you, you've got to understand that people sometimes people just don't want to like you or they just want to, especially in LA, they just don't want people to achieve and, uh, or especially achieve greatness. And I just want to achieve partial greatness. And, uh, th that's the hardest part, Rachel, is that people make judgments and they, and they shouldn't, right. you know? Well, they make judgments based on the narrative that you're given by the media or by the circumstance. Right. And that doesn't actually have anything to do with who you are and where you come from. So I actually want to get into that a little bit with you. let T yeah. Tell people where you came from. You said you're from Wisconsin. What did you want to do when you grew up? Like, how did you get to LA? Well, I basically was, I, I was pretty decent in sports and I played uh, baseball 
and I got a partial scholarship to Wisconsin Eau Claire so that they baseball. And I was pretty decent. So I said, you know what? I want to move to California and go to this school called Cal State Fullerton. And that was the number one baseball school. So I, my buddy and I drove out, left my, my family, and I just said, I'm going to California. And uh, they said, you'll be back in three months. Anyways, we <laughs> get to Cal State Fullerton, and I try out. Uh, I went out for the team, and these guys were gigantic. And I didn't, Rachel, I didn't get whiskers till I was 38 years old. So I wasn't developed yet, but I was really wiry. So I could <laughs> throw pretty quick. But I said, I... I can't make this team. I'm, I'm not going to make it. So I started getting into plays and hosting events. And I said, I, back at Wisconsin, Eau Claire, I had my own TV show called Cato and Friends. I said, you know what? I could do this. I could probably get a show. And uh, my very first audition ever when I moved to LA was a, a Coke commercial and I got it. And I said, this is kind of easy. Unfortunately, when I did the commercial, I shot it, got my SAG card, but they cut me out of the commercial. And then I got oh. another one and another one. Three consecutive commercials I got, which back then would have been like $300,000. I got cut out of all three. And I said, this is a tough business. But I, I stuck with it. So then I said, you know what? I'm just going to pursue this goal when I start getting bit parts. And I, I've said this on other podcasts and other shows. The week before the murders happened, I went to an academy for acting. But the week before uh, the murders happened, I, I tested for a film. And my friend produced a film. He gave me the script three months in advance. And this is a buddy of mine. He worked for New Line Cinema. So I had a life before. I did auditions all the time. I went to film premieres, but no one knew Cato yet. But I did everything, did red carpets. So I tested for a film called Dumb and Dumber. And it was my uh, buddy, Aaron Meyerson, who produced the film. And uh, I was reading for the Jeff Daniels Road. My hair was long. If you remember Jeff Daniels, is, uh, uh, what's his name? Lloyd. Um, it was Harry and Lloyd. So, right. uh, so anyways, Rick Montgomery casted it and I, I read for other parts and I said, Oh my God, I'm getting really close to my goal. I'm getting really good castings. And the murder happened. My whole life was shut down. I, I sort of became a caricature right. after I you know, testified. So, but before you became famous for being Cato Kalen, um, you were a struggling actor then. So, but was this yeah. based on something you really wanted to do? You're like, I really want to be an actor. Or you just had this personality, which you still have now, which is so great. And people really liked you and you're great looking. I mean, you're, I mean, yeah. I Googled you. You're, are you 64 years old? I, I am. You I look am. like you're 40. I mean, you look amazing. How do you do that? Oh. That's, a whole, that's a whole nother podcast on anti-aging, but still. But, still. But yeah, and I don't have the money, obviously. I can't do but no, but nothing. I've never done any of that. Basically, even back in the day of uh, in the 1989 and 90, and, and by the way, when I was doing that, I was also hosting car shows. So I've always been a host and making, you know, and that was a Screen Actors Guild job because I got it through my old agent, Sheila Manning. And I so I start doing all these things, but I always juiced i've never never not had a juice machine and i really it's amazing i did it i did everything before it became trends i used to eat rice cakes they used to be 25 cents that's the truth and i said oh these are, these are pretty good with salt and the sesame seeds <laughs> but i i ate all these things and i and I, I maybe it's fortunate if i drink anything i'm not a big drinker because when i get a drink or two in me i get an incredible migraine so i never i never really had that in my body and it just was always fun. Everybody goes, get drunk. You're drunk, aren't you? I go, no, it's just, it's just the way I am. <laughs> so it's it's funny that I never did all the things when I went to college that everybody was doing. And I'm 
the hindsight, I'm glad I didn't, but I, so, but that's, I appreciate you saying that. And, um, well, yeah, you had I, such I boyish great. looks and you still do is the point. So, okay. Oh, but you, but you didn't necessarily want to be this big actor or you, or you found that when you got to LA that you could, you could be in acting parts and it could be really fun. I mean, did you fall in love with it there? Oh yeah, completely. I mean, I, I, like I said, I got my first audition. I was like, well, it's kind of easy. But then again, I did all kinds of side jobs from a limo driver uh, to waiter, to bartender, to singing telegrams. Uh, I think people don't understand it's a struggle, but I never really complained because the whole time I was doing it, I was having fun. Right. And, um, and I knew it was, I just knew from my, the friends that I have still in my life, I knew something wonder. I didn't know what it was going to be. And this is the God's honest truth. Do you know, like you, I'm not getting religious, but you, I think there's like a blueprint in everybody's life. And God said, you're, you're going to be famous, but it's going to be backwards. So I became famous and I understand it for the wrong reasons, for a terrible thing um, with two beautiful young people losing their lives. And, um, I, you know, I, everything went backwards. I became famous for something horrendous that I'm aware of. And I said, no matter what, I'm going to always bring light to anything I do. And I, I feel like I always have brought it light. I've always paid it forward just because my late parents were, I never saw my mom and dad when they fought. I never saw them not kiss. So I never saw like fighting in my life growing up in Wisconsin. I always saw love. And um, I know it sounds really corny, but it's so true. And it's like, I was always raised around love. Oh, that's so great. So how did you meet Nicole Brown Simpson? Oh, so I uh, had a casting business with a, uh, a guy who was on General Hospital. Great, great looking guy, great actor. And he was my dear friend. His name was Grant Kramer. And Grant was a, a stud. He was just really cool guy. And he was a general hospital. He always did celebrity events. So we became buddies just from auditioning and seeing each other. And we became really dear friends. And he said he has a great idea for a business that cast movies for the extras. So we cast movies for extras did really well because some movies had 200 people. We get a percentage of everybody we had. I'd be the wrangler. And a lot of times I'd get one day roles to keep my SAG card up. And I'd get, we put ourselves in little parts and it was a great business. So we did well enough that we went to Aspen. He goes, everybody goes to Aspen for the new years. I said, Oh, great. We drove to Aspen. He saw Nicole. They knew each other from a, a, a skiing event, a celebrity ski event. And they started, you know, seeing each other, you know, uh, just, she was divorced and uh, I was the third wheel. So anytime we did something, it was all three of us. And then I met it at that time. I met a, an actress named Catherine Oxenberg. And then she and I hit it off at that time. And then we, we became a group for those five or six days. We were there for the New Year's. And then that when we went back to L.A., everybody stayed in touch. So and then how did you become a house guest to Nicole? Okay. I know. Oh, I was living in Hermosa Beach, Rachel. And when I was in Hermosa, the drive from L.A., to uh, Hermosa was hour, took hour and a half sometimes just to go uh, 15 miles. I saw Nicole used to throw little get togethers at her house and she had a guest house at her house on Gretna Green, not Bundy, but on Gretna Green. Mm -hmm. I went to, um, I said, who's living in this house, in this back house? And she says, nobody. And I already knew I was making her laugh. We became friends and her kids loved me. And um, she said, you can, you can have it, rent it. So I rented it. And that was, okay. that was it. Then later, she began, she began dating OJ again. And then we all became friends. 
Got it. And so what was your experience with OJ? When I was living at Gretna Green, it was, you know, my my tax bracket basically was donuts and theirs was, you know, Danish. I didn't hang out. I didn't really do anything. So I was never the babysitter. But if they said, Kato, would you watch the kids if we go out? I said, if I was available, I would love to. And so my relationship with them was uh, was fine. I never saw, Rachel, I never saw that. I saw the mean side kind of once, maybe twice of him. But obviously there was a history I didn't meet till 93. And I know there was domestic abuse in 89, I believe. So I, I was not, I didn't know them at that time. And did she tell you about that at all in conversations when you guys became friend? did she, friends? Did she warn you about that at all? Uh, she didn't say it until OJ did something terrible. And then she would say that he's a, he's a mean, mean guy. And he has this side that he's very ma- manipulative. And I, I saw it later on. And then there was a 911 call where I, I wasn't there, but I knew at that moment that this is a, a, a bad dude and they shouldn't be together. Because I'll tell you, when there were little arguments, Rachel, I went back to what my parents would do, just give them the hug and the kiss. I would say, why don't you guys, you guys got the, the, the most incredible life. You got beautiful kids, you're wealthy, beautiful homes. What, what is the problem? But in hindsight, I think the problem was that OJ wanted his cake and wanted another cake and another piece and a piece. And I think my opinion, I think that's what the thing was. And I think at one point, Nicole, she didn't say this to me, but I could feel it was it's me or it's me or nobody else. You can't have you can't have your choice. Right. Right. But so you didn't have any experience with him personally where he was awful to you or I mean, what what were your thoughts of him going into kind of the end of days with with him? How did you, you became his house guest? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, living with Nicole for seven months, uh, she then left her house and she got a place on Bundy and asked me to move in, but it wasn't a guest house. And I didn't feel right of moving into the, into the house. And she and I were never romantic, definitely great friends. And, um, I said, I, I didn't want to do with that. And I said, I'll, I'll find somewhere else. And they were seeing each other at that time. And OJ just said, you can live in a bungalow. I've got four of them, just live in one of the bungalows, three or four of them until you find a place. And that's how that all started. Right. So now just take us up to the, like the 24 hours leading up to the murders. You had, you, you spent some time with OJ that night, correct? Yeah. So I uh, used to do a lot of running. I did a few of these marathons and I would run 10 to 15 miles. And he came by my door after I ran and I played basketball and he asked for, he came in my door, which he'd never really done before. It's his house where he can do what he wants, but he came and said, uh, uh, if I could, uh, uh, break on it was about a breaking a hundred dollar bill if I had any money if I could break I said no I said but I have 40 here's 40 dollars and he goes oh that's cool and uh then he said I'm gonna go and get something to eat and I was starving and I said oh cool can I go and I knew when I said that it was sort of like I should I, I step, step, uh, stepped on a line right overstepped your okay. bounds yeah Right. And I'm the guy that's going, I probably shouldn't have asked that because Rachel, it seemed like there was a two minute pause. And then he said, okay. So I knew I was like, already, I felt really uncomfortable that I invited myself. And then he was just driving. I had no idea he was going to McDonald's or anything. I, I just got in the car and he went, went to a McDonald's and uh, it became a biggie because there was one closer to his house and the, the police, they said, why did you go to this one? To tell you the truth, I didn't even know where the McDonald's was. I didn't know there was two of them. I didn't. I, I never went there. 
So we go to McDonald's and I uh, got chicken and he got, I think, a Big Mac and a quarter pounder. But I just remember that he ate it in one bite or so. Completely. And I just waited because I thought we were going to eat at his in his kitchen. And uh, next thing you know, I got out of the car, walked to his door by his house to eat in the kitchen. And he was standing at his door of the car. He never even came back. So I was about 20 feet away. And then I was like, oh, he doesn't want me to hang out anymore. And I just went to my room. So that was the time. That's the. Right. And that was before the murders took place, yes, apparently, I- allegedly. Um, okay. And then you saw him after uh, getting into his car going to the airport, correct? When he left town? Yeah. So um, I kept thinking I was hearing a noise, a ringing and a ringing, and it was coming. My house is separate, but there's an intercom that I think the the limo driver was there, kept ringing and ringing. I didn't know what that was. So I went out and I said, uh, and in the meantime, I'm on the phone with a girl saying, come on over. And she's saying, come to my place. And we're, we're deciding who's going to come over to where, whose place she was my friend. And um, I said, do we have an earthquake? Because the picture of my wall moved. I had no windows. It was just a wall and a picture like the one behind just moved. I said, I think we had an earthquake. And she said, no. And then I, uh, hung up. I was going to call her back and I went outside and it was Alan Park, the limo driver. And I asked him if we had an earthquake, I let him in. And I saw luggage out there for OJ. So I imagine that he was just put his stuff out there waiting to go to Chicago. And, uh, but there was one bag that was 25 feet away at the uh, foot of a car uh, by the trunk. And uh, when OJ came out, I started loading the car with the limo driver and I ran to get the, I said, I'll get that one. He says, no, don't get it. Don't touch it. And that's the bag that's never been found. Yeah. To this day, it's the infamous bag that has never been found. So, and in your opinion, do you think that there was evidence in that bag? In my opinion, yes, because everything's sort of hindsight. You don't, you don't think a murder took place in hindsight. And then I go, why wouldn't he want me to touch that bag? What is, where's, where is he, whatever happened to that bag? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I have dreams about certain uh, scenarios that always play out in my mind, constantly play out of uh, how things could have been different, uh, sort of like sliding doors. What if yeah. what if I didn't go to McDonald's? What if just all these things on timelines? Right. And right. It, it really plays heavy on my mind. Right. Right. Um, so what was his demeanor like when you saw him getting into the limo and you spent that little bit of time with him? Was he fine? Yeah, uh, it seemed like sort of sort of rushed very silent, not quiet, no mood. It was just sort of like, you know, conversational. There was nothing I couldn't, you couldn't read if he just committed a double homicide. I, you would never pick that up. Um, I don't know what his ride was like in the limo, but uh, it was very short time because they left immediately after the car uh, bags were packed. Right. So then you spend your evening doing whatever you're doing. And when, when was it that you finally heard that there had been two murders? Uh, it had to be um, about five in the morning or so. And uh, uh, and it was, I always preface this by saying that the night, Rachel, was really a foggy June gloom in L.A. And I just had trouble. of, of it, it, Everything just seemed, something was out of place. I can't explain it, but it just seemed out of place. And then there was a knocking at my door with four guys at my door. I didn't even ask who they were. I just opened my door and said, hey, it was four in the morning. And they said, uh, Hi, can we come in? And I let him in my guest house. I said, we're LAPD uh, detectives. And they uh, immediately asked me who I was. And then what did I wear yesterday? And could we see your shoes? And the entire time that's going on, 
when I'm, I'm first groggy, I'm not, it's sort of a dream state. And I just said, did OJ's plane crash? Because the only thing I could think of that something happened, that they're at this house because something happened with the plane crash. And I, I didn't even think about my shoes, the clothes. I didn't, I said, yeah, here's everything. So it made no at, sense to me. Right, right. And you must have been startled because it's so early in the morning and they're waking you up out of a dead sleep. Oh, completely. So at what point did you finally learn that Nicole and Ron had been killed? Yeah, when um, uh, OJ's other daughter from the first marriage, Arnell, she was in the other bungalow and the police let us into the main house. And um, the, uh, we were on a chair and a couch away, separated from each other. And then one of the detectives... Um, went in to make a phone call and it was Tom Lang and Tom Lang didn't want the press to tell the parents that their daughter has been killed. So I overheard it, Tom Lang on the phone of saying that uh, their daughter has been uh, killed. Um, and what were your thoughts? Like what was going through your head? I was, I was wondering, I still sort of the dream state, unbelievable that, that happened and I was just thinking, what I was wondering, how could it have happened? How did it happen? Who did it? And um, the police, obviously, they don't give out anything. They don't. Uh, they've got their little system of how they're going to run a case because anybody could have done it. And I was just, Arnell was crying, and I, it was just, it blew us both away. Like you've got to be kidding me. And I, mm -hmm. I, one of the things I remember is the police took me to the station, and when they led me out the detectives uh, said, oh, watch out for the blood. And I looked down, there were blood droplets on the floor. And I always thought, boy, that's a, I, I think detectives do certain things to see if like, if someone knew there was blood or anything like that, but I did see it and I said, oh my God. And then I start going, why is there blood here? And then everybody found out later on about uh, DNA. DNA, that was the case that brought what DNA was. Right, right. So immediately in your mind, did you think that OJ had something to do with it? Uh, not immediately because I thought he was in Chicago and I didn't know uh, like time, uh, timelines of anything. So I was thinking uh, uh, that someone's got to tell OJ and then the police did their, you know, of calling him in Chicago and uh, how he had cuts on his hand. And then the suspicions start going, this something's not right, but I still wasn't convinced. I'm like, could this could he be telling the truth? Did he throw a glass and cut his finger? And yeah, it was sort of weighing on both sides. Like, could this guy actually murder the mother at her house where their kids are there? Right, right. And and you were friends with her. So were you, was there some part of you that was now grieving and upset and wanting to go over to the oh. house and see what had happened and speak to her kids? I know that they were a part of your life for a while. Yeah, no, I... I was at the police station, I think for like 10 hours or so. Um, I went back after that were released. I went back to where I lived and I was so uncomfortable because everybody started visiting of um, taking sides. And I was like, uh, then OJ said, well, Cato, you know where I was. You and I were in the kitchen. And then I just was like, no, no, I wasn't. And I thought he was trying to make me lie, set up an alibi. And then I moved out sort of immediately. And then I started becoming a little suspicious of going, this isn't right. Why is he saying, why is he saying something that wasn't true? And he knows it wasn't true. Right. Okay. So you, you decided to move out of the bungalow that you were staying in? Moved out and moved in with some buddies of mine. And um, uh, 
that was uh, a few days later than the, uh, the famous Bronco chase happened. And, um, uh, and he was driving with Al Cowlings was the driver. Yeah. And so, uh, what were your thoughts when you saw that? I mean, that was pretty crazy. I don't know how anyone yeah, was, could have my, missed that. My thought was that, you know, they said that OG's got a gun. He's going to kill himself. My opinion was at that time, I said, this guy loves to be adulated by people. This guy is no way will kill himself because he loves attention and he will never, never damage himself. He knows how to play an audience. He knows how to get pity. And I think at that time, we all saw uh, people on the freeways, their signs. uh, They knew, he knew how to play, you know, the uh, emotions of people. Right. Um, Now, you have an opinion, I'm assuming, one way or the other, about whether or not he's guilty, correct? Yeah, yeah. I've stated that. Uh, My opinion, completely guilty. Yeah. I, I think... I think most people are think that now and uh, and regardless of what I think it you know nothing will bring back two lives um and I think he's got his set fans that think he's innocent he's got his own twitter account with people that think he's the greatest and those people are adamant they're just going to stay that way yeah. um I have no contact I have no contact with anybody because Rachel at one point I just said I by the way, if I had contact with somebody, it'd be fine. I just haven't gone out to, I just want everybody's life to go on. I met with Kim Goldman. I didn't know Ron Goldman, but I met Fred Goldman, the father, and I met Kim. And I, I, I did a few events with Kim and a few TV shows. And uh, she's, she's wonderful. The family's wonderful. And to this, she'll never forget the pain that she goes through every day in the family. Right. Yeah. I mean, that kind of grieving is... So awful, and somebody being in the wrong place at the wrong time is just yeah, yeah, the, and, and, uh, unbelievable. And and the same for the for the Brown family and the sisters. And I uh, and I, I know Denise. They used to go out a lot. Denise with OJ, and I know that she's always said it, that OJ is the is the killer, and she's been adamant about it. And she knew him very well, uh, much better than I did. So, and and you're right about wrong place, wrong time. And I don't. And this is I don't want to do a promotion or anything, but. Because of wrong place, wrong time, I wrote something called wrong place, wrong time and just sold it because I'm not the only one that's been thrust into something. There's many cases of people. I I mean, true crime is the number one show everywhere. Everybody wants true crime and crime is so it's just it's everywhere. So I became sort of a a poster boy for that. And and I, I, I talk with people that have gone through similar situations on a show and and it's cathartic and it just is such a release. And so talk to me about what it was like to be in that trial. I mean, you were one of the star witnesses. You created the timeline for where OJ was. What was that like to go from being you in sort of the private life to all of a sudden being the biggest celebrity, so to speak, in the world? Everybody wanted a piece of you, good or bad. So tell me what that was like. Well, I didn't know it at the time. I just remember that I went in there as Cato Kalin. And Mm -hmm. when I came out, everybody was screaming my name. And I just said, the media is so powerful. I mean, everybody screamed my name and uh, I was recognizable. And, you know, from being invited to Clinton's dinner at the White House to all these these things. And I thought to myself, I know people are going to hate me. I and I and I totally understand they why they would hate me. But I never would hate someone for what they became because yeah. uh, I just, it's just not me. So I wanted people to know that I know, I know I didn't, I just, I didn't ask for any of this. It just kind of happened and people start 
inviting me and doing things. And I wanted to be an actor and um, it didn't, it helped me out. You know, it gave me a radio show, but it didn't help me. I, I like I said, any audition I got, it was just, I could feel that they just wanted to meet me. There was right. never anything serious, but I just, whatever, like I said, is a blueprint. And I just became uh, this guy that became very famous, you know, overnight. Right. Um, and so many people from that trial became famous overnight. I mean, people, lawyers, I believe, got television shows. I, I remember Greta Van Susteren, and I remember, you know, all these different people became famous for that trial, right? Well, not only that, they started, I think four different networks started because mm -hmm. of that, from Court TV to MSNBC to, um, there's two others, but Beast of, uh, Burden of Proof uh, with Greta, and then they, uh, with Roger Kosak. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, the list goes on. Dan Abrams, everything, every court thing you see going on from the Depp trial to the Alec Baldwin trial coming up right. to anything going on, all is because of the OJ trial. And I always said, you know, crime obviously does pay because everybody got a network deal or got a started a network and they're right. still running today. And right. it's a it's a fascination. I think people love seeing anybody in court because they go, oh, my life's OK. I'm not going yeah. to understand. I think people relate to that, Rachel, because it makes them feel better about their life. Sure. Well, what do you think when you watch these other trials that you just mentioned, like the Johnny Depp trial or even Gwyneth Paltrow more recently? Like when you see that yeah. with the with the cameras in the courtroom, what do you think about the people on trial? Uh, I'm sort. I sort of get it. I know how they can work it. I know how you can work a jury. Now, I, the first time I was ever in a courtroom in my life was the trial. I never even had a parking ticket, nothing. I would never been in a courthouse. So I, I start seeing of how you can manipulate a jury of how you can make them like you. And I saw it, especially during the Amber Heard trial. I didn't see the jury, but I could see from reaction of Johnny Depp that the, they were liking him a lot more. And you, you could just kind of feel it. There's a, there's a presence of, I don't like that person. And um, I could tell in the trial I was involved with because I saw the jury, I could see these people love OJ. He's, he's no, not going to For the verdict, you already felt. He's the verdict completely. You you just saw they they like this guy, and he would even wave. So that, and I, I think Depp's an actor. She's an actor. They they're playing a part basically right. because you are playing a part. You're going to try to make everybody love you. And um, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow just played it cool when she said she's going to sue him for a dollar. It's sort of like a win-win for her because they're saying she's not in it for the money. She just wants to clear her name. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, it's, it's always a chance to go in with a jury of how they're going to like you or not. But I think you've got when you have a good lawyer, they let you know how to play it. Right, right. Uh, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were when they brought the glove into the trial. Um, uh, the glove? Yeah. I'll tell you what I had. I never. I had my own lawyer, which they told me to get hire a lawyer, and I didn't know why because I was just this witness. But they said get a lawyer. So I had the uh, Bill Janago, and he was he's passed away, but he was so smart. And he, every lawyer says never ask a question unless you know the answer. I think it's pretty basic law one on one. I think when they brought up the gloves and they didn't have them try on gloves before, and they're not going to fit. And Johnny Cochran knew how to talk to the the jury of. The glove don't fit. You got to quit. He talked mm -hmm. in a lingo that they would get, and that became a catchphrase. 
uh, you just saw the the domination of the dream team of how good they were, and then um, how how DNA was the you know 1994 or five it was it was the first with DNA coming out, and back yeah. then DNA to me meant dude needs apartment. I was nowhere to go. No, I'm kidding, Rachel. <laughs> so so when um, Barry Sheck, who I think was the genius of the trial, he just explained it to the jury when the prosecution couldn't explain it. And he just said, right. this is, it was all tainted. And I think that sort of was what really swayed the jury of, of right. the, their conviction. Well, that's why I asked, because I, I thought that was such a, an incredible part, you know, it was a turning point for the trial. But also, I mean, it also seemed like anyone could make that glove not fit. You sp- it's been sitting there for years. It's soaked in whatever, water, blood, whatever it is. And then you have this big guy's hand going in like this. I mean, I don't necessarily know that, you know, he, he could have made it fit or he could have made it not fit. But that was just. Right. I agree with you all that. I don't know all the truth to them saying it on all the other shows that were out there on the documentary that won an Oscar for ESPN, the, the Ryan Murphy show that won eight Emmys. And they all said that he was taking medications and salt on purpose to bloat. Wow. So, you know, they trying it out. We'll never was, everybody, everybody's got that. Like, they got the Bronco image. They've got the glove image. They got mm-hmm. don't uh, if you glove don't fit, don't quit. I mean, it's got all these things that the trial had all these catchphrases and certain moments that are in, ingrained in people's brains. Yeah. So. All right. So at the end of the trial, the the. Jury goes out for four hours or something and comes back with a verdict. Do you think that uh, OJ and his team were expecting the verdict they got? I think everybody but Robert Kardashian, because that image of him of not believing it, you could see his face. Uh, another iconic image when he said, uh, rental, you know, she makes a mistake on his name to find him not guilty. So, mm-hmm. and they have that shot of him. And I think. He was the one that said, I can't believe this guy got away with it. Right, right. And where were you when you heard the news? I was sitting next to a woman named Barbara Walters and uh, the iconic Barbara Walters. And I I just whispered, I said, I think the jury made a huge mistake. Wow. And did she say something to you? What were her thoughts? She agreed. She agreed. And and through that, we had a friendship up until she had just passed away and and along with Larry King and all these people that were all part of it, and now their life, their legacy, you know, goes on. But it's a, yeah. it's amazing. In hindsight, you kind of look at life. It's like, wow, I feel like it just was like yesterday. And you know, talking to you, it's like it brings everything back, uh, good or bad. It's like I can't believe it's going to be on thirty years coming up. And yeah, it's like, I was. Are you kidding me? So yeah. it's sort of like, uh, it's um. It's just, it's so fast. As you know, time goes by so fast. And I just, if I could ask you a question, all that, I think yeah. you were maligned also. I mean, uh, you're a wonderful person, obviously. And I, you dealt, everybody deals it in a certain way. I, I dealt because I had great family and friends. I don't know how you and media start picking on you when you went through uh, mm-hmm. scandals and uh, how you handle things. Well, it's similar to what you're talking about or what I've heard you talk about in the past too, is that, you know, I went from being someone uh, who maybe wasn't necessarily famous, but I was, you know, a big deal in my own life, right? I thought that I was getting Mm -hmm. along just fine. And then to one day being thrust into the spotlight for something that I didn't want to be part of. And quite frankly, it was someone else's scandal that I just, I really happened to be in the passenger seat of that car when it went over the cliff. And yes, I had responsibility in that, but not 
the, the bigger part of the responsibility that had to do with, you know, 15 other women and a whole history of things going on. So I became the villain. And to be a girl who, you know, was, you know, somewhat young, I mean, I was in my early 30s or whatever. And, you know, to all of a sudden have the press narrate who you are and watch it, listen to it, you can't get away from it, because it was the biggest story in the world, not just like in my hometown, it was in the world, and then have people give an opinion on you. And, you know, I would hear quotes from people that had never met me or had come across my path maybe once, but saying, oh yeah, I know Rachel, you could tell. Let me tell you about Rachel. And it was so hurtful. And people didn't think of me as a person. And at the end of the night, I had to go to sleep. I had to turn out the lights and and have my head on the pillow and think about this and hear the things that people said about me. And it was awful, you know, and I, I lost my family support, my friends, no one was around. I had to hire lawyers to like kind of protect me, but they didn't know me, you know, and it was a really awful thing to go through. And people think, oh, you know, it's 13 years ago or whatever it is, 14 years ago. No, it still affects my life today. I mean, you know, I have a daughter who's 10. I try and get her into a school. And then you have people that are like, I don't want this woman here. Or I go out on a, I'm single. I go out on a date with somebody and they, they, you know, are like, oh, well, this is going to be an issue introducing you to my kids. I'm like, what issue? What is, what are you talking about? This is 14 years ago. And you don't know anyone that's ever had an affair with someone. I mean, why is this a big deal? You know? Um, so to be like the biggest villain and monster in a story, um, that was bigger than me, um, was really horrible. And to this day it's affected me and my life remains, Rachel, you could tell comma Tiger Woods mistress. I mean, it just does. And I can't get away from that. And I try my best to reinvent myself in all sorts of ways and I've gotten over it, but other people haven't. So it's very hard for me to personally get over it too. I agree. And, and I think you can relate to very much to the, how the court of public opinion works and it doesn't end. It takes time. And you, when you know yourself, it's fine. I'm fine with it. Cause I can joke about in my life if they want to make fun of me, you know, what can you do? But isn't it amazing for both of us that how many people want to be part of it? They'll just, they'll go on and they'll say, Oh, I got an OJ story. Or, Oh, I knew OJ. And yeah. then probably for you, a story. It's like, why do you want to be associated? Right. Exactly. And I always, exactly. I always flew it away everybody's got a story. So Every, and you know, exactly. It's so interesting what you say. Everybody wants to be involved. So everybody has an opinion. Everybody has something to say where they think they're, you know, an expert on the situation. And only I'm an expert on the situation I went through just like you. And it's really hard, but also it's hard when people approach you like they know you, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's, it's hard because you have to approach every single person as an individual. Right. And, and I almost have to turn people one person at a time. And they're like, Oh, I spent time with her. So now I like her. I get, I know her, but I'm, I've become very closed off, closed off. I'm more of a recluse than anything else because I don't trust people. I don't really like people because I've been treated really badly. And I love that you say like, now you can joke about it. I do the same thing. Like I can joke about it. I laugh about it, but inside when I hear what people are saying, it's not fun for me. I'm like, this guy's an idiot. This person's an idiot. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what it's like. And it's really hard to have those conversations with people that don't know what it's like when the media creates an, a narration of a, uh, of who you are and creates a caricature uh, uh, of who you are. And then the public feeds on that 
and um, yep. it's like a back and forth and you become just, you're a shell of yourself, you know? So that's been really hard for me. Yeah, no, 100%. But then you obviously have done very well and I do well. And I think it's all because of, you know, who you are as this person. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, okay, you know what? Fine. I'm let's take it on. And so yeah. that's kind of what's happening. And my outlook is great. I really think that when people, if, you know, sometimes people, I've done some speeches at colleges and I've done some, uh, you know, other people have asked me opinion on things and I really look at life this way and it helps out with everything. It's sort of like you, you've got this semester at college. Life is so short. It's like that semester, it's going to be so much fun. You're meeting all these new people. And before you know it, you graduate, it's over. So I just look at everything as like, it's my semester at college. I'm just going to have fun. I mean, I'm going to get yeah. things done, but I'm going to do it because it's going to, it's going to end. But it's interesting because people ask me if I have any regrets or, you know, if, if that time in my life I wish never happened. And I truly believe that you have to have gone through things like that to kind of get out of it. I mean, I'm proud of who I became. I'm proud of how strong I am. I don't need anyone to get me through situations and people can say anything they want and it will not affect me. And I watch people crumble in the the smallest of situations, um, I feel like I can handle anything. How, how did it affect you? Huh. I'm identical to you. I can handle anything. I, I, I can't handle anything. I, I've been through abuse. I've been to people that wanted to fight. I've been through people spitting, putting stuff in my hair. I've been through it all with a, a person that always loved people and um, always give the benefit of the doubt to anybody. If, uh, if someone says something bad about someone, I'm not the person that speaks bad about someone. I just, I, I can take it on. And um, I just think that's kind of why I think success is happening at a very late age for me. And, right. um, and I continue. I'm just, my goals are the same. When I moved here at uh, 21, the goals are, hey, I got to be this person. And, and it's never ending. And I'm telling you, every day I'm, I'm happy. Uh, ba- you know, have laugh and obviously I have down days, but you know, I really appreciate life. Right. So talk to me about your life now and what happened after. You're you're married now, yes? Just got married. Just got married. Okay. Yeah, it's just great. Uh, and uh, it's a, a friend of mine through the wedding at his house. And uh, it's a guy from Milwaukee named David Zucker, who I grew up with loving airplane naked gun movies with OJ was in them. And um, and it's amazing, too, because uh, I during my speech at David's house, we had a lot of people. I said, David, thanks for not inviting Norberg. And that was his character. So I, 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 it's so funny because David has stories about OG, obviously, also. And um, I have a very, very uh, brilliant uh, Milwaukee connection, Wisconsin. And we got married at his house, basically. And um, so uh, she's a lot younger than me, which is, is fine. And mm-hmm. she keeps me very, very young. And... Okay. Um, so, and Chinese, which I love. And it's the first time at a wedding we threw rice and she actually picks it up and steamed it. No, folks, please, <laughs> Rachel, where are we going with this? Oh my gosh. The reception. But, and, but, but she oh. wasn't anybody famous, right? Or, or No, no. Had... She's, she's, she's uh, from Beijing. But I got a real quick story. I was set up with her through, a, I was doing, I was traveling in a show and it was called um, um, Wizard World. It was the world's largest Comic-Con. I was the MC for four years traveling the world and all the major stages of the convention centers uh, from Chicago, Philadelphia. Anyways, uh, a friend of mine, an investor, I'll make it quick, uh, said, oh, this girl's moving to California. She uh, wants friends to 
hang out with. So he set me up on a WeChat app. We start talking. We hit it off. And on our first date, she goes, oh, no, in China, there's a, she speaks, she went to school of language, so she speaks English too. And she goes, oh, in China, there's a very, your name, they have a very famous show that's popular. It's called American Crime Story with this guy named OJ. And you got the same name as that Cato guy. And I said, no, I, that's, that's me. And she just lost it. And she couldn't believe it. The actor played me. She's like, no, the actor played man explained to her. And she just, she just the whole night, she couldn't believe it. It blew that, her that mind. Blew, oh my gosh. Blew her mind. But so anyways, uh, yeah. Um, we end up dating for three years and uh, hit it off. So we just did the, uh, the marriage. Good. Okay. Well, um, I'm glad you I forgot, found oh, love. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing. Honey, where are you? <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I have a couple of questions that people had uh, written in. Is that okay that I that I go and give uh, you yeah. some of these questions? All right. Um, so the Kardashians, they may not have been making many headlines back in the days when you were friends with Nicole Brown Simpson, but the OJ, OJ trial uh, thrust that family into the spotlight. What do you think of their fame today? Boy, I'll tell you... Uh, it's it's amazing because I'll bring up the Ryan Murphy show, American Crime Story, in that series when it came out, I think seven five or seven years ago, around there, they put them in the show so many times at situations. I said they weren't there, they never were part of that, but they knew how big they were. The FX, the Fox show, said put them in there. They've got a huge following. I am blown away how in, how they're a family of billionaires, and I uh, like I said. They, I knew when I lived at Gretna Green, it was Kim, Chloe, and Courtney, Sydney, and Justin used to jump on my bed to wake up Cato. I mean, they even got uh, the kids bought a dog and got the dog, the Akita. They, it was out of love. They called the dog Cato. So it was two Catos constantly around Cato, the dog, and me. And, and I still drink out of a bowl. So <laughs> they, they have, um, so I just remember them as kids. And I saw their, their and uh, Chris uh, Kardashian, Chris Jenner, I saw that sort of the grooming of the, the kids are beautiful and you could kind of tell, I didn't know there was no social media really, but you could see they're being groomed for success and that's a good thing. And it, yeah. and it worked and they are so uh, great for them. That's, you know, they hit a nerve and they've got their keeping up with the Kardashians and it's, uh, it's an empire. Do you watch so, the um, show? I'm blown away. I'm blown away of how big it actually became. Yeah. Yeah. Do you watch the show? Uh, no, I don't. I, I don't, I do, a, sometimes I travel, I MC a lot of comedy and I do these things, but I have a whole bit I do on the Kardashians and, and it's all in fun. You, do. you know, I just do the Kim, you know, when she hauls ass, she makes two trips. Have you seen her butt? It's the P-H-A-T fat. <laughs> so, I mean, it's big. And yeah, they got a sense of humor. I'm sure she'd laugh. Okay. So um, you were just talking about comedy. Um, the world of comedy took a huge hit in 2021 with the loss of Norm MacDonald. You and Norm were best friends at one point, um, but it seems like you guys had a falling out. Were you able to reconnect before he passed away? Um, I saw him in a few comedy clubs. It's not that we didn't reconnect or anything. I was traveling. He's on a show. Uh, when you have, when you're busy, you're just busy. But I got Norm into basketball we got him in a league and you know, when he was six, four, I said, you should play basketball. He wasn't good at first. He got really good. Uh, it was, so that was fun. And we used to go golfing and gambling together, but it wasn't really a falling out. It was a, it was a not seeing each other anymore. And life just grew in different ways. I had a girlfriend at the time. 
I did this stuff more with her. So okay. that that was it. People made a uh, a big thing, and I just saw someone put up on the Instagram when he's on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and I'm his his friend in the background. I crack up. So, well, what was that? And weren't you sitting next to um, Joy Behar or something? What was that? Yeah, that's when Joy was actually nice. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> sitting there, Joy, yeah, it was the celebrity version, but I was there, his buddy to be, you know, they have someone that sits in that seat that's always yeah. lit. He brought Kato Kalin for that. Um, Did you have to answer any that, questions for him? Uh, no, I just just did interview with me. And that's, you know, I was throughout the whole thing because Norm was on all week. So it was uh, on there. And then I did a few episodes of uh, the Norm show. And um, that's it. I mean, I was kind of around comedy people too. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Another question is, when was the last time you spoke or saw, spoke to or saw OJ? It's going to be almost 28 years ago. Or so I saw him in, wow. a, in a bathroom during my deposition for the civil trial where I was peeing. And he said, how's it going? And wow. I said, oh. See ya. And that's after I did a deposition of telling truths about him that were not flattering at all. Mm, right. Okay. So that must have been uncomfortable. Um, yeah. What would you say to OJ now if you ran into him? Um, you know, I, I think I would back away. I would not run into him. I think I'd walk out of a room. I just don't think I'd face him. And there, there'd be no reason to. Um, I just... I think it's one of those things that has to happen to see if I would say something, but thinking about it with you, I just, I think I'd say, I want to get out of this room. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I wanted to know what, what were your thoughts on him going to jail for the whole memorabilia thing? I mean, did you feel like Nevada was giving him this sentence because they wanted to prove a point or do you think he was just really guilty of that? I think Nevada was proving a point. I think they were saying to California, this is how you, how you prosecute a trial. This is how you do a, a real trial, and uh, we we don't have we don't care about celebrity. And I think that's what happened. I think he didn't. I let's face it. Look what's going on in the world now. People are breaking in and stealing Hermes bags and everything, and not getting prosecuted. Where he he got nine years. Uh, it's just uh, it's just amazing now how people are breaking the law and not, nothing's happening. I that's a whole other issue I'll get into, but it makes it's it's sickening to me of what's going on in the world. Right, right. Um, you grew up in the Midwest in, Mis in Wisconsin. When you went back to visit your friends and family, and your parents especially, you said they're they're both deceased now, correct? What, what yeah. were their, I'm sorry to hear that, what were their um, feelings about the whole thing and you, and what was your relationship like when they passed away? Well, uh, my father had already passed away before the OG trial. My mother was, uh, my mother was so devastated by all the um, tabloid shows that were saying terrible things about her son. And I would just have to call her when she's crying and say, don't watch this, which made her watch it even more. And I just, it just, I just, the, when you hear your mom cry, when I'm very close to her, there's nothing like it. It's just like, I don't care if people pick on me. Don't pick on my mom or my family. My family, very strong. So, but it was my mom who was so emotional throughout the, for years, just emotional, don't pick on my boy. So uh, yeah. that was it. But, you know, obviously I, I saw her very many times and I'd go back and forth and she great sense of humor. And I'd say, mom, it's all, it's okay. Don't worry about that. Did she get to see you happy after the fact? Oh my God. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. She saw me. I, I, I'd go there at least 
back then at least twice a year and spend time and go to a little cottage up in northern Wisconsin. So it, it was all good. Okay, good. Um, so now you we're talking about how your life kind of happened backwards. Tell us where you are now, what kind of shows you just sold, what, what you're doing. Uh, well, um, first of all, I do a, a, a podcast that is, uh, once again, cathartic for me. It's called One Degree of Scandalous. Rachel, you're going to do it? Yeah. It's such a good Go podcast, and it's such a good name, by the way. It's the best. Oh, yeah. Wait, let's talk about the podcast, because I'm obsessed with that podcast. I've listened to a bunch of episodes. Tell, first of all, your host, Tom Zenner, is amazing. I love him. You guys are a great uh, couple or whatever. You guys are great co-hosts. <laughs> it is it definitely a bromance. He, Tom is so good, because I'm, I'm pretty much out there, and I'm scattered, and I'll throw in a joke. Tom is just so focused and laser sharp. And yeah. it's because he's, you know, he's from that business of being a news, news anchor. Um, but man, uh, it's the, like you said, we just have this chemistry. It just works. It yeah. just works. One degree of scandals. We're getting great guests. And no, we talk some OJ stuff, but we talk about all the other scandals that go on. We've had people from the depth trial. We're going to get people from the Alec Baldwin trial. So, uh, and we have fun with it and everybody's loving the show. So because of, uh, I did, I, I wrote something with a, a partner named Mike Jaglin, who's also genius. And we had this idea of wrong place, wrong time. And we've been trying so hard to get in. We've had so many deals that happen and then fall through, but now we signed with a huge agency and we just signed it and sold the show and getting it out of the, of the story. But the company that bought it, they only get shows on the air and that's wrong place, wrong time where other people are the wrong place, wrong time. And I just shot a pilot for another show with the uh, a host by the name of John Gray. John Gray is the uh, gentleman who was uh, a pastor for Obama and Oprah Winfrey. He's got a huge media following, but it's, get this, I'm the, I'm the court interviewer. It's called Teen Court, where teens are suing their parents. It's genius. Oh. And it's done by a guy named Dan Frisch. He's been my friend for almost 30 years. And he worked with Tarantino. He produces shows uh, with um, Eli Roth, who did Hostel. And it's, he's got a new show on Amazon called Daisy Jones and the Six. It's a big hit. Uh, and so, Dan, we've been trying to do teen court forever, and we finally did it. And one of the cases is the uh, the girl wants to get a Brazilian butt. Parents say, no way. They fight. There could be embolisms. They don't know. The kids don't know. It's They're 16. So they want a real case where they're fighting. And then we have a case where it's the name, image, likeness. Someone's going to make $300,000 at age 15 because he's a great basketball player, but his mother says, I want the money. Anyways. And I, these are this, real cases? Real cases. It's good. It's so good. And I do the interviews and I put little jokes and I do the intros of what the case is going to be. Uh, Rachel, it's, I'm not just saying this. It's, it's brilliant. And are you there for the verdict and everything? The whole time. Yeah. I'm oh, there wow. in, the, in the chambers. We find out what's going on. We talk to the jury. You can vote. You know, it, they've got it tied into social media. And we'll see where that goes. But it, it got picked up by a big agency also. And people just like it. So we got that, the yeah. podcast. I travel. I'll do, I'll do a Comic-Con as a host. Uh, I leave next week. And then I'll do another one in July. And just constantly work and do stuff. But something I'm also very proud of. Can I tell you? Yes, of course. Flip. A buddy of mine named Charlie Nama played the hockey uh, NHL. And we decided that, you know, he came up with this concept that everybody goes to a hockey game for what? To see? The hot players? A fight. <laughs> a fight. Hot players. 
Sorry, I go. That's what I go to hockey games for. I don't care about the game. Hot players and fights. Yes. Oh, right, right, right. Fights. So we uh, are going on our third pay per view where we go and we have sold it where it's uh, 14 fights with hockey players, just the fights. After this, I'll send you and your link. Uh, the uh, I, It's called Ice Wars. Anybody can see on Instagram what we do. And um, Barstool Sports, you've probably heard, huge following. Pat yeah. McAfee Show, it's their favorite show. They've never seen anything like it. It's the newest sport. And I do the interviews in the crowd, and I do some of the co-hosting with some of the fights with Chris Therian, who played 15 years with the Philadelphia Flyers, and he's the voice of the Flyers. It is great. And it is, once again, it's just it's going to be gigantic. It's like UFC starting, but it's guys on skates, hockey players, yeah. right with the gloves, no hockey, right to the fights. Three one-minute rounds, and it's a round robin. It's violent, but... So is UFC. Right, right, right. So you're never not working. I love that. So I, and I just want to say it's been such an honor and pleasure getting to meet you and spend time talking to you because you are just a perfect example of somebody who became famous for being famous, right? And everybody knows your name, but that's like kind of the least interesting thing about you. You are, you're so charismatic, you're handsome, you're interesting. You have, you were a person before, you're a person after, and you're always hustling to be like a Renaissance man to figure it out and live your best life. And I think that's, what's really important for people to know that they shouldn't just know your name for that trial because it had nothing to do with you. It just actually gave you the platform to have more of a voice. And I think that's, what's incredible about you. Um, you made my, my week, my month, my year, you're so kind and thank you so much. And I feel the same way about you and you can tell by your show that you, uh, anyways, you've got the passion, you've got the caring and, um, I, I, you're just, it'll be, you're going to have so much success because you know who you are and that's wonderful. Thank you. And I'm so glad I did this. So glad I did this and that you contacted me and I, I, I'm going to see you again. Yes, so, I can't wait show. to be on your podcast. I'm inviting myself on your podcast, though. So. <laughs> we, we can't wait. Uh, Rachel, so misunderstood. What a great title. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate your time, and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Have a great one. 